Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Stefano, welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. It's great to have your company. Call Sally Round, dear name. Today, a yarn in the dairy shed about breeding and how to handle possible drought. We go hunting for possums and rats while pest trapping with a whangarei farmer. And later on, a story about Kiwi farmers helping lift Sri Lankan dairy farmers out of poverty. But first, to a roundup of the week's rural news with Sally Murphy in Ototahi Christchurch. And Sally, let's check in first with dairy prices. Well, great news. They're up. At the global dairy trade auction this week, the average price was up 1.6%, while the whole milk powder price rose 2.1%, all due to stronger demand from markets like China. Fonterra has also lifted its forecast milk price, and Chief Executive Miles Hurrell says things are looking good. An increase on milk price, uh, which of course, you know, the, the vast majority of that is consumed and spent in rural New Zealand. So to see a 25 cent movement up on uh, on our milk price to $7.50 milk price is good news for New Zealand uh, as a whole. So really pleasing from that perspective. And a strong quarter one, which shows that we're heading in the right direction, continue to work in the right direction. And it's given us the confidence to increase our, our full-year guidance, uh, again, up, up another five cents on that midpoint. So both those two uh, suggest that uh, we're heading in the right direction and good news story for both our farmer shareholders but also New Zealand as a whole. Fonterra's books are also looking good. Its profit for the first quarter is 85% up on this time last year to $392 million. Now the Reserve Bank is looking at ways to give rural communities easier access to cash. It is. The Reserve Bank is concerned about the pressure on the cash system and it's aware people like to have cash on hand in case of emergencies. It wants to find out what rural communities need, so it'll be running a trial in six to eight towns which have lost their banks and ATMs. Director of Money and Cash Ian Wolford says the 18-month trial will include funding cash services in shops. It's surprising, you know, about a third of where people get their money from currently is, is through retailers. So retailers are bearing quite a lot of costs of the cash system, a disproportionate amount, we think. But it could be other things like putting in place coin dispensing machines, ATMs in areas where there haven't been ATMs for a while. Now, the new agriculture minister has his feet under the desk. You spoke to him earlier in the week. What are his priorities? Well, Todd McClay says a focus in the run-up to Christmas is the current freshwater requirements. Well, one of the things we're quite focused on in the run-up to Christmas is the fresh water uh, requirements that the government put in place some years ago. Look, we're going to work very hard uh, with environmental groups and uh, rural New Zealand to meet obligations around the environment as well as climate change. But uh, the government has put in place a requirement for some 
fairly heavy-handed changes to be enacted by the end of next year. A number of councils have told me that they're struggling with these requirements and the cost on them is going up and they're not sure that they can meet this deadline. It also means that for a lot of our farming communities, you know, the process to go through to get it right is rushed. So we'll be looking to uh, making an announcement around sort of direction before the end of the year to take a little bit of pressure off so the councils and rural New Zealand have the time they need to get it right. Todd McClay says another focus before the end of the year is setting up a panel to review rules for the agriculture sector. He's also wanting to visit India before Christmas in the hope of opening up more trade for primary exporters, although he was tight-lipped about negotiating a free trade deal. Now China's going to stop importing frozen deer velvet from New Zealand. That's right. From May next year, it says it will only accept dried velvet for its traditional Chinese medicine market. MPI is in China at the moment negotiating terms with officials. One of the country's biggest velvet exporters is PGG Wrightson. Its national deer and velvet manager, Tony Cochran, is hopeful the frozen product can still be allowed in. Our real potential opportunity for New Zealand deer velvet, frozen deer velvet, is to get a classification as an agricultural product, which would then allow the purchasers in China to convert that frozen velvet into a healthy food product or similar, which would give us a lot more brand recognition and um, I guess get us somewhere towards where we are with South Korea. And Sally, finally, sales of some special vine clips made here are going gangbusters. Yes, well, about 30 million plastic clips are used by the New Zealand wine industry every year to hold nets over grapes to keep the birds away, but they fall onto the ground, creating piles of plastic waste. Christchurch company Poly Natural saw an opportunity and designed a biodegradable clip. General Manager of Sales Gareth Innes says after a few years in the domestic market, they scaled for export this year, which has paid off. Sales this year are sensational. Uh, I just worked out the figures. 245% increase in uh, sales over this time last year. Uh, And we're exporting or talking to customers in Australia, Germany and UK and South Africa at the moment, as well as New Zealand. Mr Innes says the clips are about three to four times the price of the traditional plastic clips, but wine producers are willing to pay as it reduces their environmental impact. Well, sounds like a great solution. Thanks, Sally. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. Last week, we explored the quiet wetland corner of a dairy farm with one of its owners, Aidan Bicken. This week, we're popping back in, just for a moment, to check out the business end of things at Kai Waiwai Dairies in the lee of the Rematake Range in Wairarapa. On a typical morning in the final days of a particularly unsettled spring, there were paddocks to be fertilised and cows in for mating, to ensure the milk keeps flowing all year round. Lots happening on the farm today. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, we're spreading the solids off the the uh, effluent um, system, putting nitrogen on, feeding calves. Uh, and you've got WorkSafe coming as well. And we've got WorkSafe coming. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good. I'm Sally from Hi, Country I'm... Life. Hey, how are you doing? I'm John Crenshaw. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. What's your job here? Uh, manager. And you haven't been here that long? No, still still fresh. Yeah. No, it came in 1st of June. You know, my values are similar to their values, so it's a good mesh. 
My focus initially coming into here is farm beautification, and the second thing is um, efficiency. A lot of your normal things that you do were kind of thrown out the window last year, or, and even half the year before. Because of the rain, just because of so the wet. Just so wet, you know, just no growth. No, there was so many, so many things that were... Um, we're making it very hard. Um, and now you have a drought looming. Well, we're, we're lucky we've got about 60, 70% of the farms irrigated. So um, at this stage, everything's status quo till end of November. And uh, we'll see what happens after that, I guess. But yeah. we, we, We've got quite a bit of flexibility around drought ha- uh, handling. Uh, we're split calving 300 in the autumn, 600 in the spring. So as it gets dry, we c- will start drying off our autumn calving herd. Uh, so February's pretty cruisy month here we get down to 650 odd cows to milk the problem becomes in March when we start calving and if that dry continues on but again is that we'll prioritize the 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 new calvers will dry off spring calving cows the same as any normal dairy farm would be doing in a drought so we don't want to be feeding supplement to lower producing animals so we'll pull all the normal levers around a drought but We've got some irrigation that keeps green pasture in the system and weather permitting we'll have um, a couple of hundred hectares of silage. Well, we should be 80 hectares of silage. 40 hectares getting mowed today, so... Oh, it is. Yeah, uh, so it should be hopefully all covered up by Thursday before the rain on Friday. (laughs) So how do you keep the cows cool in a drought? Have you got any insurance policies around that? Um, Work in progress on that is, um, first thing we do is reduce herd size. So um, uh, the the autumn calves disappear out of the system. They'll head across the road where there's a lot more uh, shade and that sort of thing. So that group's fine. The milking herd at the moment, um, there is shelter around the farm, but not every paddock yet. Uh, yeah, that's a uh, bit of a work in progress. But we're looking at actually options of um, a cover over our feed pad uh, in there so cows could come in um, possibly straight after, well, you know, lunchtime-ish and be under cover through the shed, maybe back under cover for a bit uh, before heading back out to pasture um, for the night. We're back at the sheds. Yes. What's happening today? We're in mating now, so AI. We'll run this for uh, eight weeks, um, and we're uh, not going to use bulls at all this year, so we're just going to do artificial insemination right through. Um, so, yeah, fingers crossed, we make it. <laughs> Why that decision not to use bulls? Um, a few reasons. One, um, bulls are a nuisance on farms. Um, they're hard on stock, they're hard on staff and um, also because we milk all year round um, cows have the flexibility of sort of just carrying on if they're still producing well and we can give them another go in autumn. It's a messy job. Yeah, yeah that is. It. So, so one of the, our breeding program is that we're, we're going for a Frisian cross with a stainless steel um, <laughs> tube. <laughs> so we're not so this is Frisian into the herd, into the main herd. We rear heifer replacements both in the spring and in the autumn. Um, we rear a few bulls for either ourselves or for um, contracts. This year everything's been sold. Uh, any bobby calves this year? 20 probably yeah. was the, all we sent out of... Uh, 
650. Yep. Well, out of 900 carvings or 950 carvings this year yep, will be, is 20 bobby calves. Mm. We've gone to mating um, our uh, yearlings to Angus rather than Jersey to produce a beef cross calf for sale. Um, it hasn't been wildly successful um, as uh, I suspect one of the bulls threw big calves so he had a few calving problems. But we'll also use uh, short gestation Hereford for anything that we don't want to rear uh, replacements from. So that'll throw a white faced calf so they're quite clear in the, when they come into the shed that it's a non-rearer. Um, they all go for sale where we've got a um, sort of long standing contracts to supply those to rearers. Oh. I'm being protected from the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the back the, end here. The man well, in, it's only a very small protection. But yeah, yeah, the man in <laughs> camouflage. In the dairy shed at Kai Waiwai Dairies with shareholder Aidan Bicken and manager John Crawshaw. <laughs> yeah, I should have known wearing bright pink is not a good idea when the AI technicians are at work. Just outside Whangare lives farmer Jeff Crawford. Dairy is the main pillar of his business, with Jeff's team milking 1,500 cows across 260 hectares. But it's not the cows that led producer Leah Tebbett to his farm. It's the pests, or in fact the lack of them. Thanks to Jeff, some 20 local landowners have joined the pest-free Parakiore programme, which he established. That is a bit of success. I'm with Jeff Crawford on his dairy farm just outside of Kamor in Northland, checking the traps for pests. I just throw them out into the paddock and the hawks eat them. The fattest hawks. It is a big possum. It was a thunderous thud that. <laughs> Done. Done. A little bit of peanut butter there. And then I've got a trap here, so the baiting as well. So in this, here is bait. So, you know, like if that, uh, is there another possum comes in, we don't miss the opportunity to get another one. Then I've got this for stoats and rats. And there's nothing in there. So <laughs> the last time I caught a rat, on that one and then the stoat came in to eat the rat so that's what they're designed for what are these sort of bones at my feet here? oh those are old that's old possum yeah yeah so that's from the hawk probably uh, cleaning it all yeah, off and yeah or it could be a big rat that i've just dropped there that's how that big they get because they look like the size of like a chicken bone or yeah, something so yeah, that's no, quite a big, big rat yeah well, right now we're standing at a, at a higher part of the property and get a really good view of a lot of the waterways and, and the planting and the fencing that you've done. And as a result of that too, the trapping. We've only started trapping probably be 18 months now. So we're starting to see the rewards. As you can see, we've only caught one possum so far. So yeah. that's success. Yeah. And no rats. We caught numerous rats this, um, early in the week. Um, but yeah. Starting to starting to work. So you moved into farm ownership at the age of 20 after starting up a weed contracting business or weed spraying. Yeah, weed spraying at, at the age at of 17. 17 mm. Yeah. Mm. So can you tell me why you wanted to move into farming as a self-proclaimed townie? Okay. <laughs> yeah, we sort of grew up in a, quite a poor area. Mum and Dad were, you know, we had four siblings, so I'm one of four, and. Um, yeah, we were in a rural town and looked out over the farmland and I thought, well, that's what I want to be. Any reason why, you think? 
No, I just liked I liked the smell of it. I liked the look of it. it looked like fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. riding motorbikes and <laughs> you know, chasing cows and having a dog and you know. So was dairy farming always always the goal? Um, well, it was because my neighbours were dairy farmers, so that was a good start for me. And it and it had a system. You know, you got cows in it in the morning and cows in the afternoon and that sort of stuff. So it was easy to understand. So I started saving my pocket money for that. And uh, when I left school, I worked on a dairy farm. And um, then an opportunity came to uh, get into the spraying business because the farmer that I was working for got into financial hardship and he said, oh, I've got a job for you on a spraying contractor. You can live in the house as long as you milk on the weekends for board, but you can go and get a job with this weed spraying guy. So anyway, I started with him and he said, oh, Jeff, you know, would you be interested in buying the business? And I said, well... I've really only got very little money, so I managed to scratch up and uh, sold my car, sold everything that I thought I owned, <laughs> and because uh, I was being a good saver, you see, and um, couldn't get any money from the bank, so UDC lent me some money at 26.5% and got started. Mm. And you've never looked back by the <laughs> looks of it. Now you own seven farms, you were telling me. Yeah, we've got seven properties. Um, the debt is a lot bigger now. <laughs> but, you know, I tell young people the greatest thing you never do is use somebody else's money. Yeah, it's been a great journey. I wouldn't say it's been easy. It's been a lot of work. But, um, you know, I don't class it as work. Yeah. As we head to another trap, I notice the extent of mature bush and plantings around the waterways. Yeah, well, it's a constant thing. See, all this fencing off yeah. that we've done, I'm constantly trying to kill weeds. Right. Like that area there, just that's um, regenerating. I'm using the gorse, a little bit of tobacco weed coming up in amongst it. I found a little block of ginger in there the other day because oh, birds, birds yeah. spread. So, yeah. And if you do all this predator control, it brings back birds. Yeah. Birds bring weeds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's all counterintuitive, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, but I'd rather have the birds. I've got a good family of um, pheasants going here mm -hmm. and quail. Right next to a golf course, separated by a stream, is where the next trap is. That is the boundary of the golf course. There's some people on the green right yeah. there. Yeah, so no rats in there. No. Well, no, it's been good. It's been good. You know, catching, not catching anything, is a good indication of things are happening. Because there's nothing in here either. What happens is the little mice get in and eat the peanut butter you know because they can get in there without setting it off right they're small enough so that's why i've got a bait station over there that you know lets out bait as well yeah replenishes it so yeah i just got a bit of a system where i go around and every couple of days a couple of days yeah. yeah i used to be every day you know i was getting 70 possums a week and now i'm lucky to get seven a week that is yeah. unbelievable actually yeah. No yeah. wonder you know that it's working if yeah. you're seeing that fall. Yeah. Is no, it a, a sense that they kind of, they know to stay away, do you oh, think? Oh, I just think you get the populations down, you just keep maintaining it, you know, and that's the key because it doesn't take long if you, if you stop it. All this bush is what they would call like a virgin area because you've got all the new shoots, that's what they want to eat, so you just got to keep the pressure on, you know. A rogue golf ball interrupts our chat, so Jeff throws a spare one back to them. Did you get it out? Couple here. Managed to get the golf course next door onto it. 
Oh, really? Yeah, so they're, they're doing the predicament control as well. As I set up a group uh, in this area called Pest-Free Paracavori. So I've got a lot of the neighbours involved down our road. I, I suppose we've got 30 or 40 people now. Wow. We're all doing their bit. So were they receptive, obviously, yeah. at the beginning? Yeah, so we set up, I set up a meeting and got the regional council involved. And uh, they came out. We've had two trapping days, you know, teach people how to set the trap. And, and now we've got weed days to go on top of it because everyone's getting results. Now we've got weeds coming up. <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> anyway, you. it's a good way of networking with our community, especially as a lot of people, you know, moved into the, this area. Been a good connection with, with our community through Facebook and people posting their catches. And so how does it work? Are you su- helping to supply the, the traps and whatnot? Yeah, so I set up the group and then went to the regional council and then got them involved. And then they've sort of um, managed to apply for funding to get some traps. And um, then we've supported the local community on setting the traps up and how we set the traps. And then there's been a, a availability of um, free bait um, to get started, so and everybody's just learning, you know, like stoats and cats are the big one. Um, yeah, and we're you know trying to get kiwi back in areas. When we first moved there 30 years ago, we had kiwi behind our house, but they're gone now. So you know that's one, you know, and that's growth, I suppose. You know, there used to be 13 people on our road. I'd hate to think how many now, but there's probably <laughs> at least 100 houses here now. So right, and everyone's got a cat. So I doubt it will ever get kiwi back into this bush because it's just surrounded by too much population of, um, you know, cats and dogs. But, you know, the other birds get going. At the same time, though, like going up back to where we just were, that's quite dense and seems far away yeah. from everything else. Do you think in and amongst that there could be kiwi? or? Uh, we haven't heard them. We've been out listening. Um, you know, never say never, but there will have to be a you know, huge amount of community awareness if we did release some kiwi here. You can see that uh, everyone's watching here, so just awareness on practices. But it's also There's an example, isn't it? Yeah. To, to lead by example and yeah. show that um, that while you're a farmer and people might have their preconceived ideas, mm. they're not true. No, no. Well, <clears throat> we forget farmers love the land. You know, <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. So... Leave on the back. Should I spend more time with her than I do with my wife? <laughs> it is a big, um, feels like a really big farm, but I think as a result of all the bush and the waterways planted out, yeah. it sort of sections it off and yeah. makes it seem Does, bigger. It? Yeah. yeah own little corridors. For me, you know, I've got grandchildren and you'd hope that, you know, they will carry on here. Yeah. The stuff that we start with, I believe, will be critical for them, you know, to be proud. Driving to the next trap, it's evident how the land has changed in 30 years. Large urban sprawl is now dotted around the perimeter of Jeff's farm, positioned to take in the view of the bushland that is now under a QE2 covenant. But yes, you can see everyone's watching. I almost think I should send them all an account, you know, so I can maintain their view. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad idea. So I'll, um, you know, won't put on any dusty fertiliser that'll drift onto your farm, and I'll keep it clean and be free of weeds, and you know, it'll always yeah. be green. And there will always be bird song. That's right. <laughs> be interesting to see the response, eh? Yeah. Well, they build there for the view, you know. 
rent a view. That's what rent you could call view. it. It's definitely wet underfoot, isn't it? Yes, yes, we've had 3.8 metres of rain. So you've been here for 30 years yep. and a lot of the planting happened sort of in those early stages of, of yeah. taking over the farm. And you can tell because it's one of few farms I've been on that has actually um, mature riparian mm. plantings around the place. And, and more so, it's, it's not just riparian, it, it sort of goes on and on. Yeah, well it was, the farm was run down to start with and then uh, so that helped with the decision making but we were very poor so a lot of the f original fencing was second hand materials we thought well there's no use fencing, fencing the waterways off and he's going to put something around it so we never had a plan on measurement we just fenced it for the right what we thought was right for the, the paddocks you know we didn't measure 3 metres or 10 metres some, met some places is more than 10 some places is less than 3 <laughs> it's just what's really practical so yeah it's really come up nice so it all flows from the native bush through the property and through the bottom of the native bush as well so it links lots of links but what was the motivation to do that then because obviously now it's a different landscape where people are being asked to to think more environmentally but 30 years ago it wasn't really in the discourse was it no but we were i think you were you're that person or you're not you know so for me it was about creating wetlands, attracting birds, ducks, you know, all that sort of stuff. It just wasn't, I could see that we really needed a balance, you know, and um, we wanted, you know, you know, when you've got land you really want it to look the best. The main thing is, uh, you know, if you're a landowner, it's just to start the journey, you know, and it doesn't have to be all done at once, but um, definitely, you know, if you've got generations of family coming through, you want to leave something, you know, that's something that everyone's proud of. Jeff Crawford on his farm near Whangare. I'm Robin Green, I live at Tihoro Beach and I have to say that Country Life is one of my favourite programmes. Country Life on RNZ National. Now we're heading to Fred and Sandy Herkstra's farm and dairy support business near Ashburton. Cosmo Kentish Barnes is there to find out about a dairy farming social enterprise in Sri Lanka that's getting support from Kiwi farmers. First, though, Fred tells Cosmo about his business, Vihoff. What we are doing is providing a service of trimming cows feed for dairy farmers. We also provide the equipment for farmers. And I have now specialised mainly in teaching people on how to trim cows feed properly. And you were the first hoof trimmer in, in New Zealand? I was. For 12 and a half years, I was the only one. Before then, the real, uh, farmers were doing it themselves or they got veterinarians out, but now we've got, I think, about 25 hoof trimmers in the country. What impact does hoof trimming have on, on dairy cows? So there are two aspects to it. One of them is the preventative side of it, which is basically shaping the hooves for a cow to function properly. The other one is dealing for when cows are actually lame. Now, hoof trimming is the best way to deal with lameness. Uh, then there are other things you can do also, but there is nothing that would compare to proper hoof trimming in helping the cow to function better, really. Mm -hmm. And Sandy, we are standing in a paddock now with some of the, your cattle. Yes, that's correct. Well, the, the cattle really are, are Fred's uh, baby. So we've got uh, limousine beef animals, 
and so this is our breeding herd here. We've got 10 calves I think amongst this lot. So Fred's built this up from, we started with three, uh, what about six years ago? Yeah, no about that, yeah. 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 Sandy, we've got um, someone very special here on your farm. Yes, absolutely. We have Selena visiting from Sri Lanka and uh, we had the privilege of meeting Selena in 2018 when we went on a tour to Sri Lanka with Tear Fund to visit the dairy project that uh, she's headed up over there so that we could have a look around it, see what it was, what was going on over there, what was happening and um, what support might be able to be able to offer into that space. How special is it to have her coming to your farm? Oh well it's fantastic actually but it's very different and standing out here in the not very pleasant weather at the moment is is not very nice for her given how warm it is in Sri Lanka but no it's lovely to have her here and be able to see you know a little bit of what we do. Selena as Sandy mentioned it's not the best weather today is it? Yes it's so cold here. So, tell me, what are you doing here in New Zealand? Oh, my uh, visit here, I'm focusing on sharing the success story with all the supporters and the dairy farmers here, and also learning by visiting farms, and it's a very different farming methodology we use. So it's learning, sharing, and encouraging them and thanking them for all their support. I think we should move inside because it is getting quite cold and wet. Yeah. I'm guessing it never gets this cold and stormy in Sri Lanka. Oh no, never. <laughs> we have a tropical climate. So the minimum temperature we would go is like 24, 23. And because of the humidity level there, you don't have this coldness that you you feel. Yes. Now we are retreating to the house where there's a balcony. Here we go. That's a bit better. Let's go back a bit, Selena. What do you do in Sri Lanka? What program have you started? Yeah, we started uh, just after the war finished and when the people were resettling. We were starting on uh, bringing them back to the normalcy in their life. And even though we have rice farming, which is the main income, most of these families, all of these families, couldn't go back to rice farming due to the landmines there and also the military controlled many of the areas. But always dairy had been the secondary income. So at that point in 2010-11, we thought dairy can bring in quick money for them to start their lives again. So we started dairying. And the first month we had only eight farmers turn up and 214 liters for the entire month. And the income was less than $20. So that is how the story started. Did this program start in the northern part of the country where the war was focused? Yes, exactly in the former war zone. And this was aimed at smallholder farmers 
Yeah, it is. Because uh, Sri Lanka, 85% of the contributors to the milk chain are smallholder farmers. When I say smallholder farmers, it ranges from two cows to 20 cows. And uh, women do all the work, like caring for the cows, feeding them, milking them. And we don't have, we still milk with our hands. So milking them and all doing all that. And they even attend the trainings. Uh, but culturally, usually men give their names when they enroll or register. But it has changed now. We started working with the men and uh, we sort of like ed educated them on respecting the wife's contribution. Mm. So now we have 49% of women farmers in the program. Mm -hmm. Excellent. When you started, what was the first thing you had to do? Did you have to assist farmers with purchasing cattle? Oh, yeah. First, as people ran for their lives, cows also ran to the jungles for their lives. So we had to round up the cattle. Was it quite challenging finding finding them? Oh, yeah. You have to send the farmers with... You have to initially get the military approval to go inside and then round up the cows and bring them back to the towns. And then they would divide according to the tags or the marks that they kept. But through this project, we have given them cow loans so that they can take cows. And we have given cows to farmer groups and uh, female farmers where the first calf, they will have to give it to another person. Sharing. That's, that's a nice idea. And so did you have to provide a lot of training? Yeah, a whole lot of training on feeding, breeding and animal health and uh, first aid, actually, and prevention of diseases. And this program has had support from the New Zealand government? Yes, uh, the New Zealand government matched every dollar that was given. And uh, actually, when uh, I was told that when you give $1, the New Zealand government matches it with $2. Mm. And what has that money gone towards? It has gone to the dairy farmers to restart their lives. And now we have more than 5,000 farmers trained through this program, and we have 2,100 women in self-help groups, and we have the emerging young farmers come into the program. And, you know, the milk collection has gone in our area itself with four milk routes. Uh, during the peak, we collect about 75,000 litres of milk a month, and uh, in a... New Zealand dollars, approximately $82,000 distributed among farmers for a month. This must be making a big difference uh, financially for these, for these families. It's a huge leap for them. It's a huge difference because now they can confidently plan for reinvestment. They have, so many of them have gone for formal bank loans and have expanded their farms. And this means the children staying in school. Sandy and Fred, when did you first hear about this program in Sri Lanka and how did you get involved? Well, I can't remember who uh, the, some, someone in, in New Zealand uh, got Tefan onto us. So they approached us and, and we loved the project that they are doing in Sri Lanka. So we went over to Sri Lanka and um, we had a fantastic time there seeing what they were doing seeing the struggles that they have there and 
and now hearing all the progress that they are making, it's just a fantastic thing to be involved in, really. Did you go over with other farmers who have been helping the work Selene has been doing? Yes, yes. So we went with a group of, oh, I can't remember, it would have been about 10, 10 or 12 people, I think, that we went over all together and, and we spent 10 days there. What were your first impressions, Sandy? Well, Sri Lanka is miles apart culturally to New Zealand and, you know, when we went onto the farms and went up into the north and you'd go onto a farm and, I mean, I'm used to a, a farm in New Zealand and you'd go to, you know, somebody and they had two or three cows in, in their backyard and it was quite eye-opening and the fact that they could make a living out of such a small holding was quite remarkable and I mean we saw people in various stages you know some that were quite uh, well developed in the program and some that were just coming on board and to see the difference between those people to where they start from to where they can get to was just so encouraging and one lady that we encountered who was very well developed I mean she had six cows and she was just doing so well she'd put her children through university and she was powering her cooker inside with a gas collecting system that she'd got from the effluent from the cows and you know it was just really encouraging and challenging actually to see how innovative and enthusiastic they were. Now Selena for people who aren't that familiar with Sri Lanka's history Tell me about the Civil War. When did it start and what impact did it have on the country? Yeah, the Civil War started some, uh, in the early 70s. It all started for the equal rights of the minority Tamil ethnicity. During the British, we did not have this problem, but when they handed over, it all started. But at some point, the Tamil Tigers took up weapons and then it became uh, guerrilla warfare and then the open warfare. It went on 26 years. And a portion of the land was controlled by the Tamil Tigers. Then the government tried several times to break through, but they couldn't. And in 2008, they started this big war. And many died. So over 40,000 people in the last phase of the war in 2009 and 300,000 people were displaced and they all went out of the land, of their land and stayed in a camp, which at that point UNHCR declared as the most congested refugee camp. Mm. Every family would have gone through a trauma of losing somebody, uh, losing the limbs or anything. Like, you know, if you come to the farm, all the people who work in the farm will have a story to tell you. Fred, were you aware of the scars of war when you went to Sri Lanka? Oh, you could see it when you were there, yeah, for sure. And, and it's a lot of the farms where we went to were indeed run by women because their husbands weren't there anymore. So it, it's very obvious, yeah. Mm. Mm. What is the program that you've started called? Our social program is called Beyond Boundaries and Barriers. And then Yuga Shakti is a social enterprise. So we produce, uh, we collect milk, we chill milk, and we produce yogurt. 
drinking yogurt, uh, paneer. We have seven product lines. So all the milk products are called Covin. Co means cow. Win from. So Covin means from the cow. And our tagline is nothing like fresh milk. So the milk that the smallholders produce all goes to this company. Um, not exactly. Because we have trained over five thousand farmers, and they all some some of them give it to different processes. I mean, we have about a thousand farmers giving milk to us on average, and then we also run a laboratory to test milk, so anybody can come and test their milk. Fred, so what hurdles do farmers have over there in terms of farming cows? So one of one of the things that came out. I thought it was very classic when um, the cows that produce about six or seven litres of cow per day and a lot of that is because the calves are only getting about a half a litre of milk per day for I think about half a year so those calves are not being developed very well and therefore when they grow into cows they're not going to produce very well either but I can totally understand it from a farmer's perspective I've got six litres of milk here I need to live and the calf needs to live so it's the dilemma of where do I send the milk so that is a major issue that is not easily overcome I don't think but other things as well we went to a farm and they have the cows all tied up on their farms and the cows were standing there and they didn't have any water in front of them. So we went there and we said, oh, well, how about we just put a bucket of water in front of them? But that's not culturally accepted because, and, and Selena can explain it better than I can, but I think it was something like the farm owner decides when the cow is getting water to drink. So it's easy to fix problems if you know how to do it, but then you've got all the other things in the background that makes it very complicated. Mm-hmm. So Selena for smallholder dairy farmers to uh, make a profit from milk, some of them needed to change their cultural ways. Yeah, the traditional ways that they have followed. So, for example, in the nights, have water for your cow and have food. Then in the morning, go to your shed and see how much of dung you have. And if you have big dung, you know that the cow is going to produce more. By doing that, you can increase at least one liter a day. And then we said, okay, why not bring in cash crops? Right? So we also have the ginger and turmeric in large scale in our farm, organically cultivated, and we have the vegetables. So the next thing is having home gardens to ensure healthy families. So... We started and um, now they all have plots that they eat from there and also they sell the excess. So that brings additional money to the families. So education and training is a key part of what you're doing. And to assist with that, you've started a training farm where people can come along and learn how to do things differently yeah definitely they can come in batches they stay overnight sometimes and they come and learn and not only that we use the farm that uh, integrated farm for children to come and they have they play they learn things and also we get because it's a war zone area like previous and we bring the majority and the minority children together to develop unity and better interaction so that the future generation will not 
see the differences, rather they will value the common challenges they have and they will find solutions together. Mm. Tear Fund is a Christian organisation. Does that impact on the work that you do in Sri Lanka, the religious kind of component? Uh, yeah, like we are Christian. Uh, my calling was at the age of 18 to this, so we hold the Christian values. But Christianity or any religion should not be a barrier for peace, joy and love and justice. So everyone pulls together to ensure that people can lead a better life. Yeah, definitely, yes. How much support do you get from New Zealand dairy farmers? Oh, oh, huge. So one of the reasons that I'm visiting is to thank them because in another two and a half, three years, we are completing the partnership with Tear Fund. So we want the farmers to know they have supported us, which took us a long way. And then sharing their technical knowledge, experiences. And I have one New Zealand farmer who actually videoed their day-to-day -day life and sent it to us. We use it widely in the uh, training sessions so that, you know, everyone has cows will go through this. So it's a learning curve for our farmers. It sounds like you have so many ideas. Uh, yes, we just dream. But also, there was this man who walked with us since 2012, Kevin Riddle, who is here. He actually, we, I didn't know anything about transformational development and all that. I was just learning. And even business was never in my agenda. But Kevin gave that input, teaching us, bringing the right people, connecting to us. And then he encouraged us to take these huge steps. Kevin, have you got a farming background? What drew you to this project in Sri Lanka? I actually don't have a farming background. I um, studied engineering first, but the engineering I did was a, a lot of how to develop New Zealand primary industry. I used to be in the DSIR. Um, but this program attracted me primarily because I felt that we need to help these farming families get their lives back and I had worked in war zones before mainly in the Middle East so I understood the impact that war can have on people and this started this partnership with Selena and I did ask Selena a really important moral question and that was how could she work with the military because you have to work together with everybody if you're going to have a future and her answer was, she said, even the mothers of soldiers have lost sons. And I, and I thought, this is a woman that can forgive others and is willing to work with people that had been in opposition to these communities. Mm -hmm. And I think the success of this dairy program is a mixture of being able to bring people together, whether they're Sinhali or Tamil or Muslim in Sri Lanka, and the church could play a role in that because the church is made up of singly and Tamil. So it's just like a good way of bringing people together. But also good thinking and strategies around the supply chain, but also helping these farmers change their mindsets. And we've been able to work with this for 12 years, and it takes about that long. 
and um, it's really been the support of New Zealanders and people coming from farming backgrounds together with the New Zealand government that has enabled this program to succeed. Selena, tell me about your background. Was your childhood impacted by the war? I myself is a war victim and I'm a triple minority in my country. By ethnicity, I'm a Tamil, then by gender, I'm a woman, and I come from a very orthodox family, and then by religion, I'm a Christian. So, you know, your entire life, your entire survival is challenged. And one day, I was a 12-year-old normal child. The next day, I grew up to be an adult because the war was on. I had to take care of my brother. And I faced near-death experience five times. So growing up, I never knew a lot about farming or anything. So my only thing was to make sure that the children the few in the future will have time to enjoy the childhood in my community. A child to be a child. Mm. I was going to ask you if your family were, were farmers. Not really, yes. We did have uh, cows at the backyard, but my father was a business person. So we lost everything in the war. So we have to run for our lives. And I have ran over the dead and the half dead. And I always thought later, um, I felt guilty actually. If I would have picked up somebody with me, that person might be alive today. So that is when I think I realized that we can, like, you know, what are we giving back? Because some of us were blessed to go out of that time and then to get a better education. So what are we giving back to our people and the children who are in that state still? Mm. So that is what brought me back to my region. Oh, that's lovely. And you saw that you could really help the rural communities in particular. Yes, because I'm, I am one of them. I am one of them. So why not? So when, we, when I talk to the women especially, I always say like, you know, I am one of you. And I'm at the age where I can share my experience. I just turned 60. So I always say that, you know, you can do it. Don't give up. That was Selina Prem Kumar, the director of Tear Fund's Yuga Shakti Dairy Enterprise in Sri Lanka. Cosmo was also talking to Kevin Riddell from Tear Fund New Zealand and project supporters Fred and Sandy Herkstra at their farm and hoof trimming business near Ashburton. Now don't forget to go to our webpage for more info on the stories you've heard today and there are also heaps of photos there of the people behind the voices. The address is rnz.co.nz slash countrylife. And you can also subscribe there to Country Life as a podcast. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Hey tera wiki, he konara. Kakite anmo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.